Hi, I'm Reg Harbin, and today I'm here with Kai Stroh, who is the head of mainframe development at UBS Heiner. Welcome, Kai. Tell us, how did you end up on the mainframe? Hey, Reg, thanks for having me. How did I end up on the mainframe? <laughs> it's, actually, uh, it's actually funny because I started with something similar to the mainframe when I was about 19 years old or so which uh, is, I guess, pretty young to be working in that environment with the, with the mainframes and all that. Um, it, back, back in 1999, I had finished school. And uh, back then, over here in Germany, where I'm from, uh, we had conscription. So everybody basically, after finishing school, had to either uh, spend a year or so in the military or do something else. And there were a couple of options that you had, like joining the firefighters or work at a hospital or something like that. And I ended up working at a hospital. Now, usually when you do this, what you do is you take care of the patients there. But what I did, and I guess I had just some connections there because I knew some people that worked at that hospital and they knew that I knew my way around computers. So I ended up in the IT department and they didn't have mainframes, but what they had was the AS400, which is a little mm -hmm. bit like the mainframe. It's also an IBM machine. I think nowadays they call it the I-series. And uh, that's basically my first contact with a green screen. And when I was done with that, I went to university in Darmstadt. And in between semesters, I was looking for a job, you know, just for two or three months to get to, to earn some money. And I ended up at that company, which was actually not that far from where I live, called UBS Heiner. Hmm. I had not heard much about that company, but it was only like uh, five kilometers or so from my house. So I just went there and uh, and asked if they could use somebody like me. And that's how I started here. And that was uh, like a year later. And in, in, well, 2000 is when I started at university. It must have been 2002, 2003 when I spent time between semesters at that company. And I wow. stayed here after I finished and got my diploma. Ooh, so that's uh, you're you're celebrating two decades there. That's pretty impressive. Uh, uh, yes, I am actually. <laughs> so now, um, I guess that UBS Heiner had been a mainframe software company by the time you joined them. How how long had it been around before you joined? A couple of years. Um, I think they were founded in '97 or '98, and they were founded with a. Actually, the first product that they had was a fairly simple product, but it was selling extremely well. And it was 1997 or 98, around that time. And you can probably imagine what that product was. It was something that helped mainframe customers make that year 2000 transition. So it was something that would simulate the, the transition to the year 2000. And you could do that a year before ahead of time, basically, and see if your JCL and all your programs were able to work with the four-digit year. And that thing sold so well that the entire company basically got started off of that. And uh, that gave us the the funding basically to to do other products as well. Cool. Okay, now my, my impression is that you folks really are focused on DB2, but I, I gather there was a lot more than DB2 in that case. So maybe you can talk about some of your, your products there. DB2 is certainly the main, the main focus, uh, especially nowadays. Um, used to be that we had uh, more products that were not so much focused on DB2, like the one I mentioned now. Uh, interest in that dropped quickly in, in, in mm. after 2000. Yeah. You can probably imagine that. Uh, maybe you should bring that back for the looming 2037 problem when the 32-bit mm. integer time value is going to overflow. 
but yeah, we had some some uh, other products that would help you um, convert between currencies of different kinds and uh, also keep track of programs that were being executed on the mainframe for doing inventory and also for seeing if you had maybe programs licensed that were you were not using anymore. And that gave you some ammunition that you could go to that vendor and say, hey, I'm only using that on this one LPAR and I'm paying for the whole system. So, you know, can Ooh. we renegotiate maybe? Um, but there have also been DB2 products pretty much from the start. Um, and one of the first ones was actually one that would clone an entire DB2 system with everything that was in it. And it would do it in a very oh. fast and efficient way, um, which was great. But... It, for some people, it was just not flexible enough because some people said, we don't want to clone the whole DB2. We want to clone parts of it, just a couple of tables. Mm. And so we built from, from, from that product, basically, we built other products as well that added more flexibility, um, sacrificing a little bit of speed. But that's basically how it all got started. So I, one of the things I've observed uh, dealing with various mainframe software vendors is how you know unlike other platforms the the software in the mainframe really is a function of customer demand first that that leads to the innovation you know and so there's there's a lot less speculation about whether or not it's going to play because people are actually asking for it before it gets developed and so you Definitely. get these really interesting journeys that the software takes of, of sort of becoming this that and the other thing um maybe if you can just take a look at one of your key products and give us a sense of of its, its life journey how it started out one way and became something else well, the one one product that I actually know extremely well is called BCV5. And that actually was started um, because we had some demand from an IBM customer who was looking for ways to make quick copies of their database tables, uh, which is more complicated than we would think on the, on the mainframe system. On the mainframe DB2, it's not just, you don't just copy a file and then you have a copy of your database table. It's much more complicated than that. And IBM has something that is part of DB2 that allows you to do that. It is, however, not exactly easy to use. So you have to code a lot of JCL and you have to know exactly which file needs to go where. And there's this thing in the DB2 database that um, inside those files that hold the data, there's also like hidden IDs that have to match exactly mm -hmm. certain numbers that DB2 assigns to your tables. So you have to translate those IDs when you make a copy. And IBM, IBM had something for that, but it was really awkward to use. So these guys approached us and they said, isn't there a better way to do this? And, and uh, first of all, we need to automate this whole thing. We need you to find the these hidden numbers automatically and translate those. Um, but we also need you to make sure that we even have the definitions for our target system, like the table itself, the logical object, the database table, that needs to be created. It's not sufficient to just put a file somewhere. You need to tell the database system, mm -hmm. there is a table with that name and it has these columns. And then there's a file that goes to, with that table and you overwrite that file with your data. That's basically how it works. So that was customer number one, basically. Um, we built BCV5. I guess you could say specifically for them, but we already tried to make it into a product that other people could also use. So we're trying to make standard software. So it, it mm -hmm. couldn't make it too specific to that one customer. We had to make it generic so that we could then sell it to other people as a as a as a full product, basically. Um, and there was actually, it's, I think that I can think of, of at least two or three products that started out that way. Another one would be a log analyzer that was started because people were saying, well, there are two or three log analyzing tools on the market. They're super expensive, though. Isn't there a way to 
have something cheaper. It doesn't have to have all the bells and whistles, but just give us this and this information from the DB2 log. Can you build something for us? And that's how another product got started, both in the DB2 area. Um, and those are just two examples, basically. Now, one of the interesting things about DB2, you know, I, I, I get a kick out of how, on the one hand, you know, the, the theory of DB2 is just, it's like a spreadsheet. It's just a simple relational database. And the practice of DB2 is just mind-bogglingly complex. <laughs> and especially because there's all these really hidden things. We talked about the hidden, uh, you know, numbers that refer to the tables. Yeah. There must be just so many things that you have to track in order to do oh, a, yeah. a legitimate copy, and especially real-time copy. Uh, maybe you can talk about some of those issues. Well, maybe before I do that, maybe let's have a look real quick at the reasons why it needs to be so complicated. Because you would think, why does IBM have to make it like this? Why did they design it that way? Why couldn't it be easier or simpler? And I guess the main reason is that um, DB2 really focuses on data integrity and uh, also that your, your data is basically safe when something bad happens like a crash or a disk failure or something like that, which to be fair, doesn't happen a lot these days. But a lot of these mechanisms and a lot of these things that seem overcomplicated come from the fact that DB2 really tries to, to keep your data in order and, and keep everything, keep the integrity and everything like that. Um, so one of the things that IBM does, for example, they have some sort of timestamp built into every page of, well, the files that are sitting on disk. Now, a page is a typically four kilobyte block can be eight, 16 or 32 kilobytes. And each of these block blocks has a built-in timestamp that tells DB2 exactly when this block of data was last touched. Now, when you take this and copy it to another table and that table could be hosted on a different DB2, the other DB2 will see that copy of the data and it has this internal clock of its own. So when I say timestamp, it's not really a timestamp, it's more like a counter. And when it compares the counter in the file with, with its own internal counter, it could very well be that the, the, the target DB2 says, well, I see the data, but I also see that this data seems to come from the future. So that can't be, that's definitely mm -hmm. a problem and I'm not gonna touch that data. So that's just one example. Um, there, there are more, um, like when, when something bad happens, I mentioned that could be a disk failure or something, DB2 needs to be able to recover the data that maybe was just being updated as the problem occurred. And it's not just DB2, basically every database system has mechanisms like this. So there's things like the DB2 log and there's uh, things inside the files that DB2 can use to see exactly what was already done when the crash happened and what was maybe done by the user, but it had not yet made it to disk because it was maybe stuck in a memory buffer and DB2 didn't get the chance to write it to disk before the, the system went down, something like that. And that, I think these mechanisms are mainly responsible for a lot of the complexities that we see in seemingly simple things like making a copy of mm. DB2 data. So um, there, there's obviously a whole lot of really interesting uh, considerations here, but I guess uh, my, my sense is that one of your challenges is that on the one hand, your, your utility is trying to be efficient, but on the other hand, in trying to, for example, copy directly from disk versus going through DB2, you can be faster, but then you have to do a whole lot of figuring stuff out that DB2 oh, yeah. isn't telling you because you're you're <laughs> you're figuring it out yourself. Maybe you can talk about some of the, the things you have to kind of scramble yeah. and figure out just so the DB2 will accept what you've copied. Oh yeah, definitely. So there's, I mean, there's uh, a lot of things are actually documented. There is something, there's official documentation from IBM. It's not publicly available, but you can get it if you are 
um, uh, an IBM, what is that, like a uh, business partner, I believe it's what they mm -hmm. call it, then you have access to certain internal information. And there is a manual that is called the Diagnosis Guide and Reference. And that actually has some internal information that you just cannot find in, at any other place. And you certainly cannot find it publicly on the internet. Um, and I, I even believe as a normal DB2 customer who is maybe working at a bank and just keeping their data in DB2, I'm not even sure if you have access to that kind of manual. But this manual describes a lot of the internal structures that we find inside the files. And you're absolutely right. It's basically like um, reverse engineering a file format. It's like, imagine you were trying to, um, to create a new spreadsheet software from scratch. And obviously you want it to be compatible with Excel because that's what everybody is using. So you want to be able to read and write Excel files. That's basically the same thing. You need to understand what an Excel file looks like inside, how it's structured. And you need to be able to read and write properly and uh, also take care of all these little edge cases. So for DB2, um, one example is maybe, and it's, it's an ugly example, <laughs> at least I find it it's an ugly example because it's in my opinion, one of the things that um, is not very well implemented in, in DB2. It's the way that DB2 keeps track of schema changes. What's, mm. what's a schema change? A schema change is when you have, you already have a table, it has columns, it has rows, and now you decide that you want to have a new column for that table. So it used to have 10 columns, now you need an extra one, though you want to have 11 columns. From an outside perspective, what you do is you say, alter table, add column, and then you specify the name, and if you want it to be a numeric column or a string column, and then you hit enter, and the new column is there immediately. You will see it, you can query it. Uh, you will even see that new column for all the existing rows that you already had in that table could be a billion rows in that table already. You say mm. add column, it happens instantaneously. Um, and of course, you need to specify some sort of default value that DB2 should assume for all the existing rows. And then for all the new rows, you're able to specify new values. Mm. So how can DB2 do that? How can DB2 make that happen instantaneously? The way DB2 does that is they call it versioning. Uh, DB2 keeps track of a version number of a table. When you create a table, it starts with version number zero. That's my example, I have 10 columns, that's my version zero. And now I decide that I want to have another column. So I add one and now I get table version one. Sometime later, maybe I add another column or I make an existing column longer that gives me version two of that table and so on. As an end user, I always see the most recent version. I never see the old stuff. I always see the newest format, the newest layout for all the rows, even the ones that are very old. Internally, DB2 can make it happen instantaneously by basically assigning a version number to each row. So all the existing rows that I already had in my table, they're now version zero and all the new rows that I, that I add later, they're version one. And when I access a row, DB2 will see if it's the most recent version, which is great, then it has all the columns that it needs, or if it's an older version, which means that columns may be missing or columns may be too short physically on disk. Mm -hmm. And DB2 is of course clever enough to then they call it, they materialize the row. So they, they convert it internally real quick into the most recent version by just showing me the default value for that column that doesn't really exist in that row. And that's what my application sees or what I see when I do a select on that table. So from my point of view, that new column is there immediately and it's there for all the existing rows as well. 
internally, we have these two different versions. So we have two different little formats. So for each row that I have in my table, when I work with that file on a file system level, I need to know, I need to be able to tell if this is a version zero or a version one row, and I need to treat it um, correctly when I make a copy. And of course, that's that's not enough because um, the description in the in, in DB2 itself, what that table looks like, it has all the columns, but there must be some sort of history so that DB2 knows mm. that that table used to have 10 columns. Now it has 11, but it used to have 10. And that is the ugly part because that description is inside an internal DB2 structure, but it's also inside the file where the rows are. And when you copy that over into a different DB2, so you may be copying from a production system into a test system. You need to be very, very, very careful and uh, also do some sort of translation and adjustments to make that target DB2 accept that because the target mm -hmm. DB2, maybe I created the table from scratch with 11 columns from the start. So the target mm -hmm. DB2 doesn't even know that there used to be a time when that table had only 10 columns and not 11. So that's the kind of... Uh, internal oh. things that are going on there, and we need to adjust these 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 structural information that we find. Need to make sure that there's no discrepancy between what's in the file and what's in DB2's internal structures. What DB2 knows about the file and what's actually in there, that must always agree 100%. Otherwise, when you try to access that target table, anything might happen from incorrect results to your application getting a weird error from DB2. Well, of course, on top of that, then there's just a question, if you're copying a, a live DB2 database, uh, what do you do about copying insufficiently written information when you're sort of copying halfway through a transaction? Mm. Uh, what do you do about that? Yeah, that's a fun one, because that's when we need information from the DB2 log. And the DB2 log is also documented, but the documentation... <laughs> When you look at it, it's kind of an assembly language structure that you need to be able to understand. So it's not like written mm -hmm. documentation. It's not it's not written in English, but it's it's mm -hmm. uh, it's basically you need to understand assembly language to see what's going on there. Um, and what happens is that when you allow people to make a copy while other people are actively using a table and you know inserting rows, deleting rows, or changing existing rows. That's when you need to be extra careful because you can end up in a situation where while you are copying that file, somebody changes it. And mm -hmm. there's this added difficulty of changes. They usually don't go directly to disk because that would be too inefficient. DB2 has buffers yeah. in memory. They call it buffer pools. And when you insert a row, it goes into that memory buffer first. So it may be on disk, mm -hmm. maybe not yet on disk. Depends on the exact second when you copy that file. Cool. Also, a single insert or a single delete or something like that is usually part of a larger transaction. So maybe I'm inserting a thousand rows and you mm. caught me while I was just inserting row number 567 and that's when the file was copied. So the first 567 mm. rows were in that file and the other ones that I inserted later were not yet in that file. So they never show up in the mm. target. However, all thousand rows belong to one transaction. So from a database point of view, mm. I either want to have all thousand rows or none of them, but I can't yeah. have some of the rows from a transaction and some I don't have because that would violate the transactional uh, integrity. So that is something that we also need to look at. And that's when we start looking at the DB2 log because the DB2 log is that big journal that has just every single change that happens in, to any of your tables. 
there's there's an, an entry in that journal in the DB2 log, and there's also entries that tell us when a transaction starts. And then we see all the inserts in my example, and there's a little marker there that says this insert belongs to this transaction. And then at the end, there's going to be a special log record that says this is where the transactions where the transaction ends. And then in this case, our BC5 product goes in there and says, okay, I see that this table was copied while it was being used. So let's have a look at the log. Okay, I can see that the copy took place while the transaction was open. So what the product is going to do, it's going to roll back all those changes, all the rows that had already made it to disk when we made the copy, mm -hmm. but from a database perspective, they were not yet committed. So they should not be visible to anyone. So we take them out of the target. That of course requires some extra processing. You know, we, we copy the thing and then when everything is copied, we need to do some post-processing to get rid of those open or those, those half, um, half committed changes, if you will to make sure that everything is consistent. And of course, that's not just for one table because people typically copy not one table, but mm. maybe a thousand or 5,000 tables. And every table has an index or two or three or five. So there's a lot oh. of objects to take care of, um, but it works beautifully. Um, oh. Takes some time, depending on how much activity you actually had while you were making that copy. Um, if nothing happened, then can be very, very fast. If it needs to undo a billion changes, then yeah, it will take a while, but it'll get the job done. Now, uh, I'm going to ask next, I think, just about uh, what you do for speed. But before, there's a word you keep using that is so important. That's integrity. Uh, and that word shows up in so many important ways when you deal with DB2 tools. One of them is, of course, referential integrity. Maybe if right. you can use that as just a way to illustrate the importance of integrity and what your tools have to be, you know, sure. uh, consistent with sure and that I, I don't even need to get to a complexity of my previous example where i cut transactions in half or so let's just say we're doing an insert one single row but that table happens to have an index so what happens is that db2 inserts that new row into my table but of course it also has to add a new entry to that index because the index always needs to reflect what's in that table so that's actually two changes to two different files the table has a file and the index also has a file on disk. So two different files get changed. And if I have a big copy process that starts at, let's just say it starts at eight o'clock and you cannot really predict the order in which we copy the files. You know, we have 10,000 files to copy and maybe at the very beginning of the process, we just happen to copy the file that has the data from the table. Mm. And that's when it's already, you know, we copy that thing over to the target. And then 20 minutes later, that's when the insert happens. So in my production system, DB2 inserts a new row into my table file and a new entry into my index file. And then another couple of minutes later, our copy program, BCB5, gets to the point where it's now copying the file that belongs to the index. And at that point, the new entry is in that index file. So that gets copied to the target. So what do we have in the target? We have a table that doesn't have the row yet because the file that belongs to the table was copied before the insert was made. And we have the file that belongs to the index. And that has the entry for the new row because that was copied after the index had been done, after Ooh. the insert had been done. Right. So now we have a, a discrepancy there. It's not a relational, a referential integrity problem because we're not talking about two tables where one is a parent and a child table, but this is actually um, an integrity problem between a table and its index. So the index has mm -hmm. an extra entry that we don't have in the table. 
So, so you might think this is maybe just a test environment. I don't care if there's an extra index uh, mm -hmm. entry that I'm not going to even use, or maybe you know it's it's going to affect 0.01% of my tests. But the truth is that when you have a situation like that and you run a query on your table, you can get different results based on how DB2 decides to access the data. Because DB2 knows it has an index and DB2 also knows it has a table and it knows a little bit of how many rows there are in that table. And when I retrieve rows from that table, DB2 could say, well, it doesn't really make sense for me to use that index because of certain reasons. I'm just gonna go straight to that table. And in that case, I will not see that row because it's not in the table file. However, if DB2 says, you know, for this query that you're giving me, it actually makes sense for me to access the index and then, you know, fetch other information from that table. That's when I either get that extra row because I have something in the index for that. Um, I get that when the information in, in the index is sufficient to answer my query. But when DB2 has to go to the index first, and then retrieve additional information from the table, that's when there's a big problem. So, I mean, there was a problem right now because depending on whether I go to the index or not, I have this, I see this extra row or I don't see it. But when I want to have column information from a column that's not in the index, DB2 goes to the index because it says, well, you said where ID equals one, two, three. Mm -hmm. So that's, I can use the index for that. It finds that entry. The entry points to the file in, of that belongs to the table, but the point the, the the offset word points to is empty because you know we copied that thing when the row wasn't there yet and that's when db2 will tell us you know there's a big integrity problem i mm. think what you get is a sql error i think it's a negative 911 or something resource unavailable and the error description will basically say we have an index entry that has no corresponding row on the table that's a big 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 problem and processing is going to stop your application is most likely to crash because db2 is really trying to to guarantee data integrity. And there is mechanisms built into DB2. When DB2 is not sure if everything is okay, it will actually restrict access to your tables. However, when we go ahead and, and, and do something on file system level, we're basically working behind the back of DB2. So DB2 doesn't know that we did some magic there. So it doesn't, it cannot put the, uh, the objects in any restricted states. That's what they call them. So DB2 thinks everything is fine until it gets to that point where we actually want to retrieve data. And that's when DB2 detects there's a big problem. And that's when my application crashes. Hmm. So the, all these uh, different things of integrity, I, I start to appreciate why DB2 can move so ponderously slow. And so the question <laughs> is, why does your product not move ponderously slow? Because we're not going through the DB2 engine, if you will, um, we're 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 basically um, bypassing a lot of DB2. We're operating directly on the files that DB2 writes to disk, and that avoids a lot of conversion back and forth. So the the normal tool that you would use to to copy data from A to B, uh, it's called the unload utility and the load utility. Those are fine utilities. There's nothing wrong with them, except for the fact that they're a little slow. What they will do is they pull data out of a table, store it in a normal file, and then that's what unload will do. And then load takes data from that file and copies that into a different table. And this goes through the DB2 engine. So DB2 sees every row, every row passes through DB2 and DB2 can do all sorts of conversions and checks and make sure that the index is always up to date, which is great for integrity, but it costs time. 
And when we copy the thing on file system level, we avoid all these conversions, all these different checks that DB2 does. And that gives us a lot of raw copy speed, but we need to be very careful that we don't violate any integrity between tables and indexes or between two tables that have a relationship. And to do that, obviously, you can stop the source tables, then make a copy, then start them again. So essentially, don't allow anybody to modify the source while we're making a copy. Or you can do what I just mentioned, where we take information from the log, make a, uh, some people call it a dirty copy, right? Because there could be you know, little problems in there, but then we will get rid of those problems by taking the log information and bringing everything in the target back to a consistent state. When you talk about source, of course, I, I think of programs. And, and one of the interesting things about DB2 is, I mean, it, it's nothing if not extensible. Uh, there's even things like user-defined functions and all kinds of other stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, that must have been an interesting part of your journey is, is it, in terms of doing a, a business-relevant, efficient copy and yet dealing with every last little detail that DB2 offers. Maybe you can talk about some of the interesting challenges you've had uh, of keeping up with DB2's complexity. Right. It turns out that the actual data movement, that's really just the, I was always saying tables up until now. Mm -hmm. What I should have said was table spaces because the table mm -hmm. space is basically the file on disk and the table is then the logical object that's in the table space. But I, for the sake of simplicity, I was always talking about tables. But it turns out that um, on disk, there's really only table spaces and index spaces. And no matter what other objects you have, if it's a view, an alias, a trigger, a user-defined function, a store procedure, those are all logical objects that only live as descriptions in the, what they call the DB2 catalog. Uh, so it's just internal DB2 structures, but it doesn't, it's not reflected physically on disks. There's no extra file for your trigger. There's no extra file for your alias. So the data movement itself, that's really just, table spaces and indexes, and that's that. But you're absolutely right. There's there's more, especially when you look at an application, because an application needs the tables, obviously, but the application might also need views because certain queries refer to views to make things easier for the application programmer, or the application relies on the fact that there's a trigger on a table that will do stuff when I insert a row or a function that I can call or a procedure or something like that. So in addition to the the, the raw data, basically. We also need to make sure that the logical objects are all there. And that can be also a challenge because you often have your target environments, well, often they already exist, but they may not be up to date. So tables may be missing, some indexes may look different. A table may exist, but it doesn't have all the columns that we have in production because you know production was migrated to version whatever, you know, last week. Mm -hmm. And now we have a couple of extra tables, couple of extra columns, and we didn't do that migration yet in our test system. So now we want to make a copy with BCD5. How do we handle that? And what I didn't actually mention is that when you copy DB2 data on a file system level, you better make sure that the logical objects, the tables in your source and target, which is usually production and test systems, are 100% identical. If they're not, mm -hmm then DB2, the target, which is usually the test environment, is, is going to struggle with the data. It's not going to accept it. It's going to give you error messages because it says, well, my table definition says that table should have 10 columns, but the data, it has 15 columns. So that's not right. Something is wrong here. I'm not going to continue. Um, 
so that's another aspect basically which is also built into bcv5 the whole thing with with uh, structures you know taking care that you have the same structures and source and target and the ability to create all those tables all those indexes all those views for you if you don't have them already and also compare if you have them compare if they are compatible or not and if they're not do something about it make them compatible align the structures and test and production basically so that's also something that we do well, that's that's uh, that's obviously very important. But one of the weird things that happens when you copy data from production to test is sometimes you don't want some data copied, and and that obviously must complicate things even further if you want to avoid certain PII or at least you know make sure it's handled properly. How do you deal with that? Um, that is basically we call that masking. Data masking is uh, is a term that we use for that, and it is something that BCB five can do. It's maybe not the main focus of the product. The main focus is clearly making fast one-to-one -one copies, but there are situations where you just don't want to, or even are not allowed to uh, make a one-to-one -one copy of production data and use it for testing. And the obvious example, you just mentioned it, is if you have PII in your production tables, and that could be anything from social security numbers, credit card numbers, um, even something like uh, a postal address of somebody is considered personal information. And there's basically rules and regulations in every country on this planet, um, what you can and cannot do with this kind of information. And that's why we have added the ability to BCB5 to modify data while we copy that. And there's, I mean, there are some restrictions, what you can and cannot do, can't be too complicated, but for certain things like um, replacing names or postal addresses with fake data that looks real or replacing mm -hmm. credit card numbers or social security numbers, social insurance numbers uh, with numbers that have, for example, a valid check digit, credit card numbers mm -hmm. have those. That is something that BCB5 can do. Um, speed will suffer. Um, I'm going to be mm -hmm. honest here <laughs> because that's when right. we can't make a one-to-one -one file system level copy anymore. We can't even do the straight unload load anymore, but now we actually have to go into every single row and look at the data and mm. do something with it. And maybe even go as far as retrieving a different address or a different name from um, a table that has just a big list of names somewhere. And that takes time, unfortunately. Um, it can be done, BCV5 is able to do that, but it's not gonna be as fast as a straight one-to-one -one copy. And as much as I hate to say it, you also lose the ability to make those um, copies where people can modify your tables and you still get integrity. Because when you change data while you make that copy, the information that you will later find in the log no longer reflects what's in the target table because we changed that, right? So we can't apply the log anymore. The solution for something like that is to make it into a two-step process. So first step is to make a copy that's without modifying data, but where people can make changes to production. So once you have that copy, you can you, you need to restrict um, who can access that. Not everybody should be allowed mm -hmm. to access that. So put some restrictions right. on that table. But then when you have that first copy, that's a table that nobody is really working with. So that table mm -hmm. can be stopped. You can be sure that nobody's making any, any modifications. And then you can make that, that second copy where you then get rid of the mm -hmm. PII that you have in there. So many considerations for really be meeting business needs. You know, so on the one hand, personal identifiable information (PII) is is one uh, area, and for that matter, just the whole question of regulatory compliance. 
but there must be uh, such an incredible range because this is about doing business. Maybe you can think of some of your favorite customer examples of how they've been able to take this and actually get a substantial business value from the, the full range of, of, of features, functionality that you offer. Well, the prime example is always when we have somebody who has an existing process to copy. It's often it's mostly copying data from production to tests. That's that's just the the the, the main main thing that people use BCV five for. And when you when you get to a customer that or somebody's interested in BCV five and you look closer at what they're currently doing, everybody has a process for copying data from production to test. Everybody has to have, everybody needs to do testing and to do testing, you need data. Where does that data come from? Well, it often comes from production. So everybody has an existing process. And in most cases, that would be a process that is based on unload load, because that is something that comes with DB2. It's not fast, but it's solid. So it's easy enough to use, and it usually doesn't give you any trouble in your target. Unlike that other tool that I mentioned in the very beginning, um, which could copy on file system level, but was really difficult to use, which was what got BCV5 started as a product. So let's focus on unload load. Let's say you have a process that moves an awful lot of data from production to test. Um, typically, that takes several days to get everything wow. done, uh, wow. maybe a week or two. So that's not unusual. Um, and there can be reasons for that. Maybe because um, you know you can't take data from the real production tables because they're constantly changing. So unload is not really equipped to deal with that. That's the mm. part where we would take the log, but unload can't do that. So what people end up doing is they have image copies. That's what they're called. They're basically backups of your tables. DB2 needs them to be able to recover if something bad happens, but you can unload those backups. Um, and that's where people take the data from. Now you need to identify where those backups are, what those files are called, and you need to tell unload, okay, this table, please unload it from this backup file and the other table unload it from that backup file. And you do this 10,000 times because you have 10,000 tables. That's a lot of jobs and a lot of job steps that you need to write and also maintain. If you add a table, you need to modify your process. If you drop a table or add something else, you need to modify your process. On top of that, it creates an awful lot of temporary files that are then just sitting there containing production data. So you need mm. to think of protecting those files from, from access. Um, and then the second half is, of course, loading all that data then into your target tables. Um, and there's, I mean, load is reasonably solid, but there's things that can go wrong. Um, load goes through DB2. So DB2 will do a lot of checking. And for example, if you have the have two tables, they are in a parent-child relationship, referential integrity, mm. and you load the parent table, what DB2 will do is it will restrict access to the child table because it says, well, you have just loaded new data into the parent table and the load is usually executed in a way that uh, integrity is not checked for every row, but instead you accept the fact that load is a little faster, but then access is restricted until you check the integrity of every row. So access is limited mm. to your target tables. You need to get rid of that. There's an awful lot of things that you need to do um, on top of, you know, just making sure that the, the the jobs all run okay. These things like getting the order right and then doing additional things in the target. Um, some people call mm -hmm. it babysitting the whole process. That that takes mm -hmm. a lot of time. And you don't have all that 
with BCV5. And so when we go into a company like that and we uh, show them BCV5, we say, you can basically use this as a drop-in replacement for your existing unload load process because you specify the tables that you want. Um, and instead of suddenly, instead of 500 jobs, they only have six jobs because that's how BCV5 is designed. It's always the same number of jobs, no matter how many tables you're copying. Um, so they only have six jobs to execute and they run much faster too because they're operating on file system level. They don't produce any temporary files. They go straight from source to target. So straight from production to a staging area or maybe to test. Um, even if those are on two different machines, by the way, so we can copy over network if we need to. Uh, and, and that saves a lot of time, saves a lot of disk space and a lot of headaches for the DBA. And typically, um, we can replace a process that I mentioned like a week or 10 days maybe um, with a BCV5 process that finishes. You, you start it in the morning and it finishes before lunch. That's really how it is. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, I just saw the business value flash right across my, my perception of all this. That is spectacular. Now, I, I gather that BCV5 is not an island, but it's sort of in the context of a, a bunch of uh, related solutions. Maybe you can kind of uh, take a, a five thousand foot view of of all of your solutions and how they bring uh, you know just a business value proposition to your customers. Yeah. Uh, I'll try. Um, so BCV five is uh, the the way it's built. It's working on file system level, so it's great if you want to be a little selective and you say I want to copy this table but not that one. That's great. If you say I want to copy the entire DB two with everything that's in it and it's maybe fifty terabytes worth of data. That's where you get to a point where it doesn't make sense anymore to copy that on a file system level because you want everything anyway. So it makes more sense to clone entire disks. And there are specialized tools for that that do it extremely fast. Um, they work similarly to how a RAID system is set up. So basically you push a button and then logically the copy is, is, is done in a second. Physically behind the curtains, the like the 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 disk cabinet keeps working until everything is copied. But logically, you see those new disks immediately, and you can work with them, and they are already independent from the uh, original disks. So there are ways to make these extremely fast copies. It requires hardware support. Mm. Um, IBM sells it as flash copy. Other 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 vendors have different names for that. So there's things like snapshot. Timefinder or something like that, but essentially they all work in the exact same way. Logically, they make an extremely fast copy, which you can use immediately. And when you want to clone an entire DB2 with everything that's in it, that's a good alternative because it's much, much faster than BC. I mean, BCV5 is already so much faster than unload load, but a volume-based clone is even faster. So mm. 50 terabytes in two hours, not a problem. If you look in the other direction, maybe you don't want to copy everything that's in a table, but maybe you want to be more specific. You say, I want only 10% of the roles, or maybe you say, I only want customers from a certain zip code area. Then it gets a little more complicated because it's usually not only one single table that you're looking at, but it's other tables that have relations with that table. And if you're picking the customers from a certain zip code area, that also means that you know, the invoice table, you need to be very specific here as well and only copy the invoices from those customers mm. in that zip code area because the other ones you couldn't even insert because those customers are missing in the parent table. So integrity would be violated. Mm. Um, for that kind of for that kind of stuff, um, we also have specialized tools. Um, it's actually, it's called XDM. It's designed to do this. And 
you can when you when you think of what needs to be done there look at every single row and decide whether it needs to be copied to the target or not um, you can imagine that it can never be as fast as a file system level or even a disk clone but it gives you so much more flexibility and since when we were, were developing this this product this xdm product um, we said, you know what, since we're looking at every single row anyway, we might as well use standard SQL statements here, like select and insert. And that way, we're no longer limiting ourselves to DB2 for, for ZOS, because everything that we talked about so far was always limited to the mainframe platform. So the BCV5 product can only work on DB2 for ZOS. The one that I mentioned that does the full disk clones, that's also mainframe only. Mm. But with XDM, we actually... Um, opened up and we uh, <laughs> made our very first steps on the non-mainframe environments. So the uh, Linux, Unix, Windows databases like SQL Server, Oracle. Uh, there's, of course, also DB2 for Linux, Unix, and Windows. PostgreSQL, uh, MySQL, MariaDB. So these things can be supported by a tool like XDM easily because it's using standard interfaces. And that's basically the, you know, on, on the one end of the scale, there's raw speed. You can't get faster than cloning disks. On the other end of the of the spectrum, there's this super flexible tool which uses select and insert. So it's slower, yes, but it gives you that extra flexibility. So you're always sacrificing <laughs> one or the other. And the middle ground is kind of BCB5, which is very, very fast, not as fast as a full disk clone, but much, much faster than copying individual rows and still gives you a lot of flexibility when it comes to making copies without stopping the source. And even doing things like, uh, we I haven't mentioned that so far, but renaming your tables. You know, your tables could have different names in your test environment, different schema, different table names. That's not a problem for BCV5 or XDM. For a full system clone, that's not possible, unfortunately, because the, the full system clone always includes the DB2 catalog where all these logical mm. descriptions are. So can't change those. Right. So basically over, I guess, a quarter century, uh, you folks have sort of, your, your products have grown up with the uh, evolving nature of, of DB2 and, and other database, obviously, usage. Uh, as you take a look at that journey and you sort of look into the, uh, the, the immediate and uh, not so immediate future of uh, databases and DB2 and, and how your company is going to continue to enable business value, what are some of your thoughts about uh, where we're going next? Well, obviously, something like BCB5 is a very mature product. So, you know, we're not uh, reinventing or, or inventing new stuff every other, other month mm -hmm. or so. That's it's something that exists. It does its job extremely well. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're that that there's nothing going on there. I mean, we keep track mm -hmm. with with IBM when IBM releases a new version of DB2 or maybe a new function level for DB2 version 13 or so. It could be that we need to make certain adjustments to BCV5 in order to support new features or in order to make sure that everything still works as expected. So there is ongoing development there. And there's mm -hmm. also still to this day, there's sometimes customer requests for features that we simply didn't have because nobody was asking for them. Mm -hmm. And one example, and I believe you even mentioned that before, it was uh, user-defined functions. It's something that... It's it's I mean it's just you could argue that it's just a logical object you create it once and then it's there and then you can use it right so maybe there's not a need for a process that can copy those functions every time you push a button. Um, 
but uh, there there is actually some some interest in that and a customer an existing bcv5 customer approached us and said you know um i have a couple of udfs here and i guess the way they work is they often clean up their systems so i mean it's it, probably has something to do with the whole, whole DevOps thing going on. You create an environment, you use it for a while, and then you throw it out, right? And they actually wanted BCB5 to copy these UDFs too, which for us meant adding support for, in this case, just the DDL generation. So DDL is the language that you use to create objects because there's no physical file behind a function. It's just a definition inside of DB2, but we need to you know, create the statement that we can then use to add that function to the target db2 so that applications or maybe views or triggers can use that and that's something we have added we we didn't have that nobody had asked for it in over 20 years now somebody's asked for it so we're adding it in general yeah i mean in general like this, like i said the, the the mainframe products are pretty mature there's a lot of stuff going on in xdm uh i guess the the non-mainframe world is maybe a I don't want to say moving faster or something, but it's maybe um, not as homogeneous as as the mainframe. So there's a lot of more, a lot more different database systems, and people regularly ask us for support for a certain database system that we've never heard of, right? And then we need to mm. check that it actually works with standard interfaces and such. Um, and there's a lot of things going on there in the in the in the whole DevOps department where people create very very small environments and they don't want to copy not even for 30 minutes or so huge amounts of data but they need five tables with 50 rows and then like five minutes later when the testing is done that table gets dropped again so that's something that it's it's getting to the mainframe but we see it more on the non-mainframe platforms. Um, it's, it's a little more agile, maybe, if you will, where the mainframe is maybe the more conservative platform where things move a little slower, but it's rock solid. <laughs> well, well, you know, Kai, this has been absolutely fascinating and very informative. Um, are, are there any closing thoughts you want to share with us? Um, closing thoughts. I mean, when it comes to our products, um, if the things that I talked about um, hit a court and you say, this is something that I want to see. I want to see how that could maybe help me in my environment because I have these unload load jobs and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm always tasked with copying this, this environment from A to B and it always takes me so long. Or maybe you're saying, you know, I, I wish I could have my, my refreshes done much more frequently because right now we're only doing refreshes of our test environment, maybe once a year. Um, but testers would like us to copy that much more often, but we just can't because it always takes three weeks. So we can't do it every other week, you know, <laughs> then yeah. maybe, maybe if you want to look at BCV5, uh, get in touch with us. Um, we, we offer free trials. That's not a problem. Uh, we help you installing it, getting started on, on your, on your ZOS platform. If you're not working with ZOS, but a different platform, maybe look at XDM. Uh, if that sounds like it could be something for you. Um, that's uh, that's our offer, basically. Thank you very much, Kai. I really enjoyed this.